So this is why I consider uh, that choosing leukemia was uh, the best decision in my life because within the span of one life professional time, uh, we were able to change the full course of all the leukemias from mostly incurable to mostly curable. That was Hagab Kantarjan, chair and professor of the Department of Leukemia at MD Anderson Cancer Center. In April, Kantarjan won the 2023 David Karnofsky Memorial Award for contributions to the development of novel therapies for several types of leukemia and his dedication to improving the lives of patients with cancer. Kantarjan has contributed to practice-changing translational research accomplishments in leukemia that have transformed the standards of care and led to significant improvements in the survival of patients in several subtypes. In this conversation, Kantarjan reviews his extensive career in leukemia research and discusses the high cost of drug prices, his optimism that the U.S. will overcome healthcare disparities, and the many lessons he learned from his mentor, Emil J. Freireich. Dr. Kandarjan, congratulations on winning the Karnofsky Award. Thank you very much. It's a great honor uh, to be the recipient of uh, the award. I'd love to start this interview by going back to the beginning. Um, if you could take us way back and talk about what first drew you to the field of medicine and then to oncology specifically as a medical student in Beirut. In the 1960s, cancer was a big thing. Many people were dying from cancer, and it was uh, probably the dream or the vision of many of the children to be the people who uh, could cure cancer. It was thought as one entity. Mm -hmm. And then as uh, I uh, got close to uh, the university time, uh, I decided that I wanted to do um, to be a cancer expert. In those days, there were not, um, uh, there wasn't enough uh, cancer expertise, mm -hmm. uh, and there were not uh, that many treatments for cancer. So it was a confusing time where people would tell you that there's really no cancer expertise, uh, and yet uh, I had to find out um, when I came to MD Anderson in 1978 that in fact, there was an extensive uh, cancer expertise and many cancer experts who were embarking into trying to cure uh, cancer and its different subsets with, in those days, chemotherapy added to radiation therapy and to surgery. These were the three modalities of cancer therapy when I started my training in 1980. You touched on a few questions that I'll be, um, you know, asking in a few minutes, but if we can dive into more detail, that would be wonderful. Um, I'm curious about how you ended up working at MD Anderson. I know that you did a, a sem semester there. Is that correct? So in 1978, I was a third year medical student and we had the option to take two months of electives uh, outside uh, the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. So I took the opportunity and joined the two months of elective from the third and fourth year and came to MD Anderson. In those days, the two uh, most well-known institutions in cancer research were MD Anderson and Sloan Kettering. Mm -hmm. And I applied to both. And uh, Dr. Freirach, who is one of the most wonderful cancer and leukemia experts in the world, immediately responded and uh, welcomed me. So I came 
actually the um, uh, on Thanksgiving day I ended up in Houston uh, and I had to wait for four days because this was the Thanksgiving long weekend. Oh. I stayed in a hotel for four days waiting for MD Anderson to reopen. I remember I walked, the hotel was about half a mile uh, from MD Anderson on Holcomb Boulevard. So oh. I walked and I circled around MD Anderson and it was all closed because of Thanksgiving. But this is how I ended up here for the next four months. And this is when I uh, realized what a wonderful cancer research paradise this was mm -hmm. uh, because we are uh, trained at the American University of Beirut and in many academic centers to simply assimilate and absorb knowledge. And here was the place where there were about 50 people uh, whom I used to read about and I used to read their papers and research in those days in um, uh, cancer, which was the most popular cancer journal. Mm. And uh, yet uh, at that time I was sitting in the same room with these people who were not absorbing knowledge, but innovating on a daily basis and creating new knowledge that could help cancer research. So there were so many big names, uh, but the most important ones, at least in my view, were uh, doctors Emil J. Freireich, Michael Keating, uh, uh, Kenneth B. McCready, um, Jordan Gutterman, and many, many more of these wonderful innovators that make, made a big impact on cancer research. After I finished my four months of elective, I went back to Lebanon and I couldn't wait to come back to MD Anderson. And I came back in uh, July, 1981 did my two years of fellowship, and then I chose to become a leukemia doctor. In retrospect, I think this is the only tumor specialty that I would have loved as much as I love it today. Um, by luck, I ended up uh, through um, just admiring Dr. Freireich to choose leukemia research, and um, it turned to be the best decision in my life. Wow, why is that? Because uh, over four decades, we ended up um, uh, changing the course of the leukemias from being mostly incurable to mostly curable. If you think about it, in 1981, uh, the two most common chronic leukemias, chronic myeloid and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, were incurable. Today, chronic myeloid leukemia is functionally curable with pills, the BCR able tyrosine kinase inhibitor, the first one being discovered uh, by, um, by Dr. Brian uh, Drucker. First one, imatinib, was discovered by Dr. Brian Drucker, and then there were so many others. So today's CML is functionally and molecularly curable, and um, almost uh, 90 plus percent of people with CML live their normal life. Chronic lymphocytic leukemia in 2015 uh, we started um, investigating the combination of a bruton, bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor, ibrutinib, with venetoclax for two years of therapy. And we find now that two years of therapy can eliminate the disease in most of the patients, and we have an estimated five-year survival over 90%. So these uh, two leukemias, the chronic leukemias, are now functionally and molecularly curable. 
the acute leukemias in 1981, the cure rate was about 20% with intensive chemotherapy. Today in ALL, the estimated for five-year survival with new targeted therapies added to chemotherapy that we um, uh, combined very recently are showing four-year survival rates of over 85%. In acute myeloid leukemia, most of the AML subsets uh, are now associated also with four to five-year survival rates over 50% uh, with the use of targeted therapy in combination with traditional chemotherapy. So this is why I consider uh, that choosing leukemia was uh, the best decision in my life because within the span of one life professional time, uh, we were able to change the full course of all the leukemias from mostly incurable to mostly curable. Yeah, that's probably as close as somebody can get to that childhood dream of curing cancer, right? Right. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so I'd love to go back to uh, Dr. Freireich, if you, if you don't mind. Um, I understand he had a large impact on you and all of his mentees, and I'd love to just hear a little bit more about him and your relationship with him and his mentorship. Uh, when Dr. Freirach died um, in 2021, I wrote several obituaries about his life, which is an amazing life. So Dr. Freirach was born in poverty in Chicago and he struggled, uh, uh, but he ultimately ended up in medical school. And he was a visionary person and also a person uh, who always thinks outside the box and um, always thinks very unconventionally. So when he moved to the NIH, uh, he had um, many difficulties with uh, the leadership because uh, he was coming up with ideas that were not in line with the traditional thinking. So his first thought was uh, the, uh, that uh, platelets uh, if we isolate them and give them to patients with leukemia uh, who were uh, bleed, dying from bleeding complications could help that. So he had to demonstrate this, uh, giving fresh blood to patients with leukemia and low platelet counts. And when he showed in a randomized trial, actually, of fresh platelets versus uh, of fresh blood versus stored blood, that the fresh blood containing the effective platelets were stopping the bleeding, people did not believe him. And they thought that he was lying. So then he moved on to uh, develop uh, what we now call the phoresis machines. So he, um, he partnered with IBM to create the machines that separate the platelets from the red cells from the white cells. And this is how he started the research on platelet transfusions. Uh, and this is how the phoresis machines that we have today were the product of his imagination. So now every hospital has phoresis machines that separate platelets, give them to patients and separates the blood components. And also the phoresis machines are used today to collect stem cells for the purpose of peripheral stem cell transplantation. The other big innovation was his use of combination chemotherapy. So in those days, in childhood ALL, there were four chemotherapy drugs developed over two decades that were uh, of use. Uh, one was prednisone or steroids, then 6-mercaptopurine and methotrexate, uh, and um, 
than Kristen. So Dr. Freireich had the audacity to say, rather than giving them each as a single treatment, we should combine them together. So you have to remember in those days, um, doctors, when they encountered a child with leukemia, they said, let's not let them suffer. Let's let them die peacefully and with dignity. So when Freireich started treating patients with childhood ALL, this was heretic. And um, once he started doing those therapies and moved to the combination, people thought that this was crazy and that he was a criminal because why should you waste all your important bullets and at one time rather than sequence them to prolong the survival? So this was in those days, a highly controversial and innovative idea. And this is how he uh, showed uh, that childhood ALL could be cured. This was the second cancer uh, that could be cured. The first one was choriocarcinoma using methotrexate. But the second cancer that was uh, highly curable was the result of Dr. Freirach's efforts uh, of combination chemotherapy in childhood ALL. That's amazing. And that must have felt so, you know, lucky to be studying under him. I wonder how his sort of, you mentioned he thought outside of the box and he was willing to challenge the norms of the time. Did you inherit any of that type of thinking as well? When I came in 1981, I was still, I had changed a little bit from because of my experience in 1978. So I started thinking that really creation of knowledge is more important than absorption of knowledge. And I watched Dr. Freirach during my fellowship. Uh, Dr. Freirach uh, was a very outspoken uh, person and he moved things and made progress sometimes through confrontation. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a real confrontation. He just wanted you to think about things and see if you can find alternative ways to the traditional approach. So this was his way of challenging people uh, to, to think differently and to change their minds. So this was the first and most important lesson I learned from Freirach, which is not to accept knowledge as it exists, because it is true that probably 95% of the knowledge that exists today will become obsolete 10 to 20 years from now. So it's very important to continue to challenge the standards, the accepted standards, and to try to create new knowledge and innovate outside the general um, herd mentality that exists at any point in time. That is so interesting. So you touched on this quite a bit. So if, if you've said all you want to say about this, I understand, but I just want to give you an opportunity to speak more on it about what the leukemia field looked like when you were a young investigator. I know you mentioned that it was nearly incurable, um, but if there's any other sort of topics or if you want to expand on that as well. No, I think in 1978 and in 1981, most of the leukemias were incurable. So we divide them into the chronic leukemias uh, chronic myeloid and chronic lymphocytic leukemia. In those days, the average survival in these two chronic leukemias was two to three years, and we had very few treatments like busulfan in chronic myeloid leukemia and some steroids, cyclophosphamide and chlorambucil in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Today, chronic myeloid leukemia is highly curable with the BCR able 
kinase inhibitors functionally and molecularly, and uh, patients with CML live their normal life. So now the estimated 10-year survival has increased from 10, uh, 20% before 2000 to over 90% in 2023. In chronic lymphocytic leukemia, a similar situation happened more recently where the discovery of the efficacy of uh, the bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors and venetoclax as single agents each led the, uh, the MD Anderson group and many others to combine these two drugs in a fixed duration of therapy. And now, uh, even though chronic lymphocytic leukemia is still quoted as being incurable in the cancer and medical textbooks, I think we have the tools to cure chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So with this combination now, we're demonstrating that the disease disappears in most patients with CLL, and the estimated four to five year survival is over 90, 95%. So again, and, and patients are stopping therapy and the disease is not coming back. So I think chronic lymphocytic leukemia is curable. Uh, with, the two acute lymphocyt uh, with the two acute leukemias, ALL and AML, in 1981, the cure rate with intensive chemotherapy was around 20 to 30%. Today, ALL has estimated five-year survival rates over 80%, and AML and its subset has uh, five-year estimated, uh, uh, fi estimated five-year survival rates in the range of 50 to 80%. Too. Looking at your list of accomplishments, it's mind-boggling. I was wondering if you wanted to share one or two that were the most exciting to you or the ones that made you the most proud. So first, it is my, not my list of accomplishments because the, the accomplishments are so many that they, uh, it is impossible uh, for these to be accomplished by an individual. The accomplishments are the results of a very large group of leukemia experts that uh, have uh, been at MD Anderson since uh, 1965. So Friday came to MD Anderson in 1965. He established the Department of Developmental Therapeutics, which was one of the first and largest departments solely dedicated to cancer research. And then uh, in, uh, in 1979, uh, the Department of Developmental Therapeutics split into uh, about 12 or 14 specialty departments. One of them was leukemia. And in 1981, when I came to MD Anderson, the leukemia department had um, about seven leukemia experts, Dr. Freirach, McCready, Keating, Ron Walters, uh, and a few others. And uh, over the years now, today, the leukemia department has about uh, 40 to 50 leukemia experts. And most of them stay at MD Anderson and continue to do the leukemia research. And this is why, because we have a large body of highly trained people in a very rare leukemia. Uh, and because we inherited the mentality um, given to us by the first generation of Freireich, McCready, uh, Keating, and the others, uh, we're, we're able to do so much uh, research and to innovate and publish on it. So the... Uh, the progress is the product of many, many leukemia experts at MD Anderson, as well as 
leukemia experts in the United States and in the world. But I'm very proud uh, of the research uh, that we have done here. If I had to cite uh, the two accomplishments which I'm most proud of, I would say that these are accomplishments of uh, resuscitating drugs that were uh, ignored or um, discarded. So one of them was the cytabine that we developed uniquely on an investigator IND in 1992 at MD Anderson, and it ended up being one of the two um, most important hypomacillating agents which are FDA approved and used in myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, the other big discovery happened more recently with the development of uh, antibodies against targets in acute lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, the two uh, drugs I'm very proud of because they were the product of a lot of our research are enotuzumab, which targets CD20 and ALL, and linatumumab, uh, which targets CD19 and ALL. So we started using combinations of these two antibodies with the chemotherapy, and we're having fantastic results. So these are some of the recent discoveries that our group is very proud of. So you, you mentioned that when uh, Dr. Freireich was sort of changing the paradigm of how childhood leukemia was treated, he was met with a lot of pushback. And so I'm wondering if you faced any pushback at all to your early research, um, or if it was pretty much support throughout your career. No, actually, there's a lot of pushback. Anytime you are not um, in line with the traditional thinking, there are people who uh, may get annoyed or be suspicious of the research. So you, if you think about uh, cancer research and uh, research in general, um, there are 1% of the experts who are innovative. And they are almost always highly controversial because when they start in their research, people disbelieve it. Uh, um, and uh, sometimes this leads to um, heightened emotions and so on. So there's always some form of a conflict when you're thinking outside the group mentality. And 99% of the people are uh, generally um, comfortable with, uh, with the existing knowledge. So uh, they may be watching you on the side and until what you are proposing is proven, uh, there's a lot of distrust and uh, disbelief in, in what people do. So um, anytime you try to uh, innovate in any field uh, of, uh, of medicine or outside of medicine, there's going to be um, a large group of experts or people who deal with the same issues that, uh, that uh, do not believe you and may have... Um, serious doubts about the research. So what innovation do you think was met with the most pushback from your career? I think the cytabine is one of them because the cytabine uh, seemed to many people like a me-too drug like cytarabine. Mm -hmm. So the cytabine was developed as a cytotoxic drug in the 1980s in Europe. And it was found uh, to be very toxic uh, at the dosages that were used, which were two grams per meter squared. So in, uh, in um, 
1992, I was at a meeting in Rome and I happened to be in a symposium where the cytabine was discovered. And I thought that perhaps this is a drug that was ignored because it had been abandoned uh, in Europe. And there was no not much research with the cytabine in the United States. So in 1992, I worked with uh, a company in Europe, uh, Pharmacomie BV, that had the drug. And they allowed me to um, um, develop what's called an IND protocol, which is an investigator study where we imported the drug to MD Anderson in 1992, uh, and we started the research. But we started using it as a hypomethylating agent rather than a cytotoxic agent. So we started using the dosages at one in 20. So instead of two grams per meter square, we started using the drug at 100 milligrams per, uh, per meter square per course. And this was with the help of uh, Dr. Jean-Pierre Issa, who is a wonderful expert in epigenetic therapy and hypomethylating agent, and who had joined the leukemia group at MD Anderson. So from 1992 till 2002, we were the only group in the whole of the United States and the world who are still doing research with the cytabine. We repurposed it as epigenetic therapy, and then we developed the phase three trials that led to the approval of the drug in the United States as a treatment for myelodysplastic syndrome, and later in Europe for the treatment of older unfit AML. So I think uh, the cytabine was probably one of the most difficult drugs to develop because the standard notion was it's similar to cytarabine, so why do you need to um, uh, reinvestigate it? Inotuzumab had a similar track because Inotuzumab, the drug for ALL, um, uh, the uh, company that had it, Pfizer, was developing it for lymphoma in a phase three trial. And again, um, MD Anderson took an investigator IND and we started developing it in ALL, but there was no support except for the free drug. When the phase three trial in lymphoma of inotuzumab failed, we had treated already 90 patients with ALL with that single agent and found it's probably more effective than intensive chemotherapy. Wow. So then we went back and developed the phase three trial led by MD Anderson that led to the FDA approval of the drug in acute lymphocytic leukemia. So these are two drugs that, that um, are of interest because they had been uh, somewhat abandoned uh, by um, either the drug companies or the leukemia investigators. And through uh, efforts at MD Anderson, we were able to resuscitate them and get them to FDA approvals for different indications. Thank you for walking me through those. We're going to shift gears a little bit. You have seemed to be a huge proponent of lowering leukemia drug prices. I'd love to hear about sort of the current state of that, what efforts can still be made and what efforts are maybe you still making? So let me walk you through the history of this. So um, cancer drugs were not always that expensive. They started becoming expensive with the development of the novel targeted therapies. So in 2000, when Brian Drucker developed uh, imatinib for chronic myeloid leukemia, the drug came to the market at a price of $32,000 a year, which was the equivalent of the price of interferon, which was the standard competitor. 
Uh, and, you know, leukemia doctors, cancer doctors, and physicians in general do not pay attention to the price of drugs. So I was shocked in 2012 when um, I realized that the price of uh, imatinib, uh, and for that matter, many of the targeted therapies, was not only expensive at the start, but uh, had uh, quadrupled to over $100,000 a year, even though the company had made all its profits, even though the population under treatment expanded, so there were more profits, yet the choice was to continue to increase the price of the drugs. And that has been a trend throughout the years where drug companies increase the price of patented drugs by 10 to 12% a year, and they also delay the uh, expiration of patents. So patents are supposed to last for eight to 12 years, but through different maneuvers in the United States, you can extend uh, the patent um, to, uh, through sub-filings and so on to 15, 20, or even 30 years sometimes. More importantly, um, there seems to be, um, even when the drugs become generic, and you would expect that the price of the drugs will go down very quickly, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case uh, because of the intermediaries that exist between the drug company where the uh, drug goes out to the patients. So these intermediaries continue to increase the drug prices. So let's take imatinib now, where there's the patent expiration for many, many years. There are 15 generic imatinibs, and they all get out of the um, uh, drug manufacturer at an average price of $5,000 a year. But when they reach the hands of the patients, 13 of the 15 have a price of $130,000 uh, because of the profits through the intermediary. So the problem in the United States is because healthcare is for profit and um, uh, there are market forces that distort uh, the competition and lead to the expensive drugs because everyone wants uh, to, to make some profit. This is not the case outside of the United States, in Europe, in Canada, uh, in the Middle East, and in many other areas where actually the same drugs, which were developed in the United States through the uh, American taxes, uh, people outside of the United States get access to these drugs sometimes at a fraction of the price of the drugs in the United States. So in 2012, we started writing, um, uh, myself and many others started um, um, uh, highlighting um, this problem. And the problem exists truly because even though we think that the healthcare system in the United States is the best in the world, this is not the case. Even though we spend 18% of our GDP on healthcare, um, uh, countries in Europe spend six to 9% and yet with objective measures, they deliver better care to their patients. I just did an analysis on uh, the, uh, through the SEER data on survival in chronic myeloid leukemia. In, in Sweden, in Europe, where uh, there is universal healthcare and all patients with CML get access uh, to uh, uh, regular imatinib and TKIs, 
the 10-year survival is 90%. In the United States, the SEER data shows that the 10-year survival in CML is still about 60 to 70%. So there are at least 20 to 30% of Americans who are not getting optimal treatment in chronic myeloid leukemia simply because they cannot afford the price of the drugs. So of course, the um, drug industry tries to say, well, this may not be true. Uh, and if you curtail the drug prices, you curtail innovation. But this is actually not true. And uh, I and many others have written editorials uh, to the effect uh, that if you, if you reduce the drug prices, innovation will continue in the United States and elsewhere. So I think despite a decade of advocacy, I think things are going to start to happen. So for example, very recently, uh, Mark Cuban, who's a billionaire, um, uh, decided to create a generic drug company where they will sell the drug price at cost plus 15%. So this is, uh, if the same trend continues and there are several innovators who are uh, developing such outlets that bypass the intermediaries, then we will be able to see a significant reduction in the cost of the generic drug. So I'm, I'm optimistic that there are going to be uh, new uh, tools and innovations uh, in cancer care and in medical healthcare where uh, drug prices are going to be significantly lowered uh, through such interventions and innovations. Yeah, absolutely. That's great to hear. What worries you most about oncology right now? In oncology, I think we are on a wonderful positive track where there are many new discoveries, uh, targeted therapies, immune modalities, which are adding to the therapeutic armamentarium. I'm very impressed, for example, with the data with immune therapy through the efforts of Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Jim Allison, where those checkpoint inhibitors are curing about 50% of patients with melanoma. You have to think that melanoma was one of the most incurable uh, cancers. And today it is one of the highly curable cancers. So we have not only surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, but now also the immune therapies, which come in the forms of antibodies, of CAR T cells, of checkpoint inhibitors, and perhaps in the future, NK cellular therapies and others. So I am very, very positive about the progress and uh, research in cancer. And I think cancer will be history um, in the next 20 years, uh, throughout most of the cancers, if not all of the cancers. Um, so, um, I'm not concerned about this. What I'm concerned is about the healthcare inequities. I would like to see in the United States um, a form of universal cancer and healthcare that allows not only the rich to be cured, but also the poor to be cured equally and effectively. So I'd I'm concerned about uh, healthcare and cancer care in the United States to be unequal and I would like to see procedures and legislations that equalize the opportunities of cure in cancer and in medicine in general. It should not be the case that a person who has a good insurance or who is rich 
could come to MD Anderson and have access to the most innovative research with the most effective drugs. And many of those drugs will be for free on a protocol when on the other hand, there would be a poor person who has the same leukemia that could be highly curable and cannot access this kind of research or care because uh, they do not have a good insurance or they do not have um, access to this kind of healthcare. So I'm most concerned in cancer care about legislation and uh, strategies that equalize cancer care across Americans to allow uh, the poor and the rich to uh, have an equal opportunity at a cure. Yeah, absolutely. What is your advice for those doing translational medicine or any young uh, young cancer doctors, um, especially though doing research? So MD Anderson is the number one cancer center because we did focus on clinical translational research and we focused on delivering uh, the most optimal exceptional cancer care through research. So research-driven exceptional cancer care. My advice to the young people and to people who do clinical translational research is to keep being optimistic, to advocate for their patients, and to continue to innovate and uh, think differently than uh, the the, uh, standard thinking. I think Innovation is the only way where we can transform knowledge uh, over time. And we have to continue to do the research both in the lab and in the clinic uh, and translate the discoveries uh, from the lab to the clinic and vice versa in the shortest period of time possible. Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast, podcasts of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cancerhistproj. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by The Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Cedar sinai Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.